again, it ties back to education is that it's never too early to take your head out of the sand with your personal finance stuff. And I always consider uh, student loans for me to be kind of a gateway drug toward personal finance. You're like, okay, it's not monopoly, we have to finally deal with it. And I think once you make the choice to start paying attention, to start being proactive in your decision-making, you never stop. What's going on, guys? This is Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Today, our guest is Ben White. Ben is a neuroradiologist. He's a physician. Today, we are talking about the student loan crisis situation that we're in, how borrowers can get out of their student loans or, or reduce those student loans with an interesting strategy that you might not know about. And then we also talk about how we got in this situation and how an expert on the student loan market, which Ben is, he is steeped in this student loan market and situation, how he would fix where we are today because we can talk about what the individual should do and we absolutely absolutely should talk about that what you can do if you're in this situation with with hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loans like many doctors are getting out of medical school today but i think we need to look at the broader situation as well and understand what's going on what could be done to fix some of this and and repair things moving forward for the next generation going into college and the generation after that and moving forward how can we fix this system to bring some of the costs down improve it i don't know get people out of school with less student debt and just just fix the situation something's wrong we can fix it so we're talking about all that today it's a fascinating discussion and ben is so knowledgeable on these topics for those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. I love talking about all of these topics, financial independence, personal finance, and real estate related. And that's what we're talking about today. Without any further ado, here we go with our guest, Ben White. Ben, thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. Great to talk with you. I'm excited for what we're going to talk about. But for those out there who don't know about you, can you tell us about yourself and what you do? So I am a neuroradiologist, a physician uh, in Dallas, uh, Texas, where I uh, mostly grew up and where I live now with my wife and two kids. And uh, I'm also a big uh, fan of student loan education. And I've been writing about that topic online since around 2009. So and I've read a couple books about it as well. That's great. And this is a huge topic facing our generation. And like I said, before we started recording, this is a big blind spot for me. Uh, I didn't have an enormous amount of student loan debt or any student loan debt when I got out of college because I was very fortunate in my situation, but I am not the norm. There are a lot of folks, uh, particularly uh, physicians, and but not exclusively physicians, who get out with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. So you know, can you first tell us about the kind of the scale of this problem and you know, how pervasive it is and how it's impacting folks' lives? It's super pervasive. So the overall kind of estimated amount is around $1.7 trillion in, in America. It's now, after mortgages, the largest category of consumer debt that people hold. So it's, it's an incredible burden on people. It's caused a lot of young people to basically delay their life, right, to move back home because they can't afford to have their own house or, or make a purchase. It makes people delay their marriages, delay their lives, delay their livelihood. It's a huge, huge problem, and it's only really getting worse, honestly, uh, because we haven't addressed kind of structural issues and how we fund higher education. So 
you know, over the past 60 years, we've seen uh, super inflationary tuition growth where college and higher education costs more and more and more, despite perhaps not giving a commensurate value for that increase in tuition. So it's a huge problem. People like me, you know, even I had my parents uh, paid for my college, but you know, I took out, you know, loans for medical school. And it wasn't until I had to deal with that, you know, monster debt, I think I owed around 160 before uh, school was over. And then with capitalization became higher than that. Until I had to deal with that, I didn't really think about it. And no one I knew thought about it. And everyone I've talked to in the 10 years since then doesn't think about it because they don't want to because it's crippling to think about owing five figures, six figures, sometimes high six figures, it's basically a gigantic brain mortgage that you got to deal with potentially for, you know, 20 or 30 years. Wow. And I've, I've heard this, I don't know if it's a hundred percent true, but I've heard that it's a particular type of debt. It's the only one that can't be kind of wiped out in bankruptcy. Like there's no That's correct. getting away from it. That's wild. The only way you can get away with it other than paying it off or getting it forgiven via an official forgiveness program is to be permanently disabled or to die. That's it. Those are the two ways. I don't like those options. No, not not good options. Oh, interesting. So, I mean, you mentioned that the the cost is exceed. It's like a super inflation. I think is the the word that you used. Without a commensurate increase in earning power. Now, what's your opinion about? You know, I've seen a lot of my generation go for let's face it, degrees that never gonna are gonna make anybody any money because there's nobody out there hiring. I don't want to pick on any particular major, but basket we all weaving. know basket <laughs> weaving is the, the pet one. Where do you stand on that? Is it, I mean, is it still across the board? You know, it's not increasing the earning power of say, to kind of go after your example, you know, doctors, doctors make good money, at least eventually. I mean, is it still exceeding that earning power increase too? So it cuts into it. It doesn't make it not a good investment. So for a doctor, for a great example for, you know, for this discussion, so a doctor right now, on average, will graduate with over $200,000 of debt. And that's actually a little bit misleading because more and more doctors now are coming from means. Their parents have money supporting them. Actually, fewer doctors are uh, coming at this with no money because it is so expensive now. It's scaring people away. So the average person, quote unquote, around 200. But really, people exit med school with you know, $400,000, $500,000 all the time. A private med school can cost you know, $70,000 in tuition alone per year. Um, so you're talking about people spending you know, six figures per year, cost of living included, and that's, and that's accruing interest the whole time. There's no, there's no subsidized loans. So I mean, the, the minute you get that money, you're, you're paying for it from that point on. And so yeah, doctor is a good job. You're going to earn a six-figure income, almost guaranteed. There are almost no doctors in America who get MDs who can't get a residency and can't get a job, although there are some people who get uh, degrees elsewhere that have, do struggle to get good jobs. Well, let's say you're getting, you know, regular MD kind of doctor in, in America, you're going to be fine. That being said, you know, 30 years ago, the cost of going to med school would have been around $30,000 total, you know, a completely different scale of money. So people who used to take out loans back in the nineties might borrow, you know, five grand a year, 10 grand a year with very low interest rates, you know, so the, the amount of debt they'd have to deal with is kind of trivial compared to their income. Whereas now a lot of doctors might earn a fraction of that and be kind of forced to deal with their loans over the course of potentially, you know, even 20, 25 years. And there are doctors out there who are utilizing long-term forgiveness programs because the actual ability to pay down their own debt is basically insurmountable. They just can't handle it. You know, if you owe half a million dollars, if you make 150 a year, 
the interest on that half million dollars loans is more than you really can stomach. And so it's a huge problem. Uh, wow. You know, again, you know, for you know, dentists, doctors, you know, some of those professions end up being okay. A lot of lawyers, though, if you go to a, a non-select law school and you don't do that great, I mean, not necessarily a great idea if you're not going to work public service. Wow. I mean, that <laughs> that stinks. You mentioned interest rates a couple of times, and this is another piece of information that I'm completely lacking. But you know, right now, at least the federal funds rate, the rate that banks borrow at, which is almost meaningless for the rest of us, but is you know, it's zero. It's going to be zero for a very long time. And generally speaking, that pushes interest rates down across the board, makes money cheaper overall, and not for everybody. But what do interest rates really look like on these loans? Are we talking, you know, two percent or twelve percent? <laughs> um, so, so that, that kind of, um, like the LIBOR rate and things like that, that are, that are also, you know, important rates. That's what private companies use for refinancing. So if you have a, a federal loan, you refinance it with some kind of private company, they're using things like the LIBOR to tag the rates too. And so they can be quite low. They can be in the twos or threes or fours, depending on how much you owe. But the federal rate, which is what people actually get for their loans from school, that is actually tied to a treasury note. And, and for whatever reason, it's, uh, it's quite high. So. It's always in the fives for undergraduate usually, um, and for graduate school, it's usually a bit higher. Uh, so it's usually in the sixes. And if you have a plus loan, which is when you need to take out lots and lots of money, they added an extra point onto that. So when I was in med school, my loans were at 6.8%. Wow. And if you needed more money, so if you were to private school and you, and you had to take out more money than was eligible for the regular program, it was 7.9%. And so that's what it was. And then you know, recently, the past few years, this whole private refinancing thing has become popular because, again, there's a big delta between that eight percent in what the private market can, can tolerate but uh that doesn't work for things like loan forgiveness and other and other stuff like that but so they're they're quite high probably the most important reason why they are that high is because the federal government is from the bill for people who are never going to pay it back so the default rate is high it's i think around 20 percent right now it's, and it's getting higher every year it's been getting high since the 80s and so they know that because anyone can take out a loan it's a need-based loan so no matter what your degree is if you're going to an accredited university you can take out loans for college. And so even if you will never finish college, even if you will graduate degree that will not get you a good job, if you make basically no money, the federal government's still going to give you that money up front. And so on the back end, if you don't pay it, well, the rates are high in order to deal with that problem, to be able to, you know, knowing that people are either going to default or have their loans forgiven, everybody else who's paying it back has to pay a higher rate to make it all work out mathematically. So I, I, I want to kind of flesh out what that means to default on these loans, particularly when it can't be taken away in bankruptcy, things like that. I mean, if you ever make money again in your life, they can theoretically come after me. How do people yeah, even default you. on these? So what happens is, you know, so if you default, um, you go to collections, basically. It's a federal collections process, but they have great power compared to your average collections company. So they can garnish your wages. They can take away your social security benefits. They can um, take away uh, your tax refunds if you have tax refunds. So if you underpay your taxes or, I'm sorry, overpay your taxes, they can take the overage there. The fact of the matter is, though, if you, let's say you borrow 50 grand and you're making 20 grand a year, you know, if you're not making any payments on that, the garnishment they can do on you is not going to end up making them money. They're never going to make their money back. Right now, currently, despite the default rate rising, they actually are, you know, quote unquote, making money on student loans. Uh, the government is currently doing quite well for itself with the program, but the caveat to that is that default rate's going up and they have to account for that in the future. The timing of that is such that the amount they've forgiven so far is very low, but will go up astronomically in the future and have to deal with that too. So in the long term, they're not going to make money, but right now <laughs> they, they're making money. 
Wow. So, all right. It's been doom and gloom so far. This sucks. I'm in a bad mood. <laughs> how can we, how can folks out there who are facing these enormous loans and maybe they knew what they were getting into, maybe they didn't. I think they didn't is probably the lion's share of, uh, you know, people getting out of school with enormous six figures plus of debt. How can, how can they deal with that? Like, what's the strategy to make that go away? Andrew, there are several strategies, and part of it has to do with what your employment prospects look like. And so I think the first thing is just understand that, you know, it's not monopoly money, right? So I think when you're 18 or when you're 22 and going to grad school, and you're taking out money, it doesn't feel real because the college says, here's what it costs, here's what you can get, sign here, and here's your money. And that's literally how it happens. And you just get a check, you know, they take out the tuition part first, and the rest of it in the check. And so <laughs> it doesn't feel real. It feels like a salary almost, but it's not a salary, right? It's a loan. And so if you're still in school or you're dealing with that, the first thing to understand is that it's, it's a loan. You got to pay it back unless you take very specific steps. And I think that one of the first things to do is figure out, if you, especially if you have a debt, if you, if you owe more uh, in your total student loans and you earn per year in salary, it really behooves you to, to sit down and think, is there a way I can get my loans forgiven? And the most common way to do that, or not most common, but probably the best way to do that is through the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program which is a, a federal government program where if you have qualifying loans from the federal government, you work on a qualifying kind of nonprofit job, either a 501c3 job or working for the federal government or a state or local government. Uh, if you have that kind of job and you make payments for 10 years, 120 months, it can be non-consecutive, then you can apply and get the whole balance forgiven with no taxes. Wow. But that's a, I mean, that's a long time to- 10 years. Make that plan. I mean, 10 years- but it's 10 years with an income-based repayment. And so the, what those programs currently are for most recent graduates is 10% of your discretionary income. So discretionary income is defined as your adjusted gross income minus the poverty line for your family size and state. And so what it boils down to is before taxes, but after things like 401k contributions for their pre-tax. And so you're paying 10% on that per, per year. Let's say you make $100,000. Well, and your family size of one, it's kind of like making $80,000 basically with poverty line calculation. And then if you max out your 401k, then you make $60,000. So it's six grand a year. So suddenly it's not that much money. And so it's one of the things where if you don't owe much, it doesn't make any sense, right? You just pay it off yourself. But you know, if you're making $40,000 a year working as a teacher or making $50,000 working as a nurse or something like that, and you owe 200, well, that's a, that's a really negative interest rate that the government is willing to give you. And so, I think the news stories recently have been very negative about the program and for a variety of, of real reasons. But as you know, I see people all the time, especially doctors, who've literally just rejected the idea of the program because of things they read online. When you're talking about rejecting the idea of potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars of free money, and you're like, there it's very rare in this world we live in of people just to give you <laughs> six figures of like just cash, right? It never happens. The idea that you could borrow money and have a negative interest rate is unheard of, except for occasionally with that, you know, inverse bond stuff. But, you know, in real life, for most people, that never happens. So make sure it's not for you before you ignore it. I'm definitely curious what the negative news stories are about that. And I definitely want to touch on that. But I see the main probably rebuttal being, all right, you're working in public service, you're probably making less money than you could make out in the public space. So is that the kind of the main rebuttal that people have to it is I'm going to make about 20, 30% less working for the government or, or what have you compared to what I could make elsewhere? That, I mean, that's 
other than the logistical stuff that people will really get into in the news stories. But yeah, I mean, upfront, is, is it actually worth it? And you have to do the calculus, right? You have to look at my job, your job offers out of college and say, okay, what's the difference between a private job and a public job? And yeah, if the difference is huge, then it doesn't make sense. But again, you know, with this, it's a tax-free process, right? So the benefit of this uh, public scenario is that in a private job, it has to be a higher salary after taxes to make it actually help you out, right? Because the, they, the benefit from the public service loan forgiveness is the tax-free benefit. So there's a little bit of a mental math you got to do. But yeah, no, there is, there is an issue there with that. And so it doesn't make sense for everybody. You know, if you're a lawyer uh, and you're, again, you're, you have the ability to work in big law and you don't mind working in big law and you can make as a junior associate six figures and as a partner, you know, mid sixes, then yeah, I mean, you're not going to make money in KSLF. What it does do though, is allow people to take jobs and do things that would otherwise be financial suicide, right? To say, I became a lawyer because I want to help people and work in the DA's office, and I can't do it because I owe 300 gay, and it just doesn't make sense for me to have a family and raise my kids and you know help them go to college and plan for my retirement if I'm trying to service that debt for the next you know, 20 years. And so it helps a lot with that kind of stuff. So I think we talked about some of those people having having degrees that are not necessarily the best degrees in the world, right? In terms of financial benefits. So if you're majoring in English, whatnot, you know, yeah, if you're going to be a teacher somewhere be a teacher somewhere where you can get your loans forgiven, right? There are a lot of, there are a lot of jobs for teachers that are at nonprofit schools, in which case that job will qualify, which is fantastic. If you work at, you know, a job doesn't qualify or you let's say work part-time, like, oh, I'm going to do some locum thing or I'm going to work as a, as an adjunct somewhere where I'm being paid on a 1099, not salaried. Those are jobs don't qualify. And so it's really important. Again, if you have the situation is to take a job that qualifies. And so a lot, and a lot of teachers I know, have these kind of pseudo jobs where they're trying to stay in academia and they're, they're not good jobs. They're low paying. They're also not necessarily full-time jobs. They don't always even have benefits. So if you don't have a W-2 benefit kind of job, it's not going to qualify. It's got to be a real salary position. And so it's really important people to kind of do that stuff to make sure they're doing the right stuff. And yeah, sometimes it means having a job that you don't love that much or, you know, working a few more hours, so you can be full-time instead of part-time because you have to be full-time as well. And so there are things you can do to make sure it all, the math works out and that you dot your I's across your T's. But you know, again, if it's if you're in a situation where you have crippling debt, you got to kind of take some drastic measures to deal with it. So that only applies to like federal federal loans, right? Though, if you take a loan out from a bank or a lender, or whatever, correct, the government can't step in and say this is forgiven now because you worked in public service. So correct, you're on your own. What's that kind of breakdown? You know, I, I guess what percentage of people, roughly, you might not know it, is it really um, a benefit for in terms of that? federal versus private loan distribution? Almost everyone is federal now. So back, you know, 10 years ago, it was 80% private, basically. But what happened was the federal government used to have a program called the FEL program. It was the Family Federal Education Loan Program, where money would be given away by banks, but guaranteed by the government. So if you defaulted, the government would pay the bank on your behalf. It was a good deal for the banks. Obviously. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. Um, no, it's ri- ridiculous. I mean, so anyway, so that, that was abolished in 2008. <laughs> And 2010, uh, formally, but kind of 2008 is when it kind of wound down. So ever since then, everyone who goes, you know, every kid in high school fills out the FAFSA, you know, they fill out the FAFSA for federal loans. And so people really only take private loans if they need money in excess than what the federal government can give you for um, your course of study. And so there are people out there who do that, uh, but it's not that common, actually. Most people have uh, federal loans up front. Now, what some people do is they refinance those federal loans through a private company to get a lower interest rate. That's a one-way street. So all people out there who, let's say, say, okay, I'm gonna work in private, I'm gonna work in a private sector, I'm not gonna work in public sector, say so refinance your loans. 
a, you know, they take their job, a year into that job, they hate the job, they leave the job and they go work public sector and they're doomed, right? And so that happens all the time, especially for doctors. You wow. know, the average doctor is going gonna, is gonna to leave their job within one or two years after, after residency because it's, you know, stuff happens. People's contracts aren't always very generous, yada, yada. But so, yeah, there are a lot of people out there who like, oh, I'm not going to need this. I took a job but, you know, in so-and-so with this group and then they hate the group. The group hates them. It doesn't work out. And lo and behold, by sheer coincidence, they end up in a job that would have qualified. And they were like, well, now you're stuck with it. So, but yeah, no, I mean, most people do have wow. federal loans. And so it's, it's, a, it's a really big program. And that's why it's been in the news a lot, because it sounds too good to be true, right? And so whenever it isn't true, it makes a great news story. Wow. So, I mean, you're probably more steeped in the system than anybody else that I or anybody listening is really going to talk to. You're certainly more knowledgeable on this system. You mentioned that these costs have risen exponentially or superinflation because the way in which that we uh, finance the higher education industry, if you will, if you were to, you wave a magic wand, Ben is king for the day. He gets to fix the system. What does he do? What do you, what do, you do to fix this system? I'm curious. I think one of the things that's very easy to do and not, not super controversial is to make the schools accountable for the tuition costs, right? So right now, a school can basically say almost whatever it wants to within reason and have that be part of the quote-unquote cost of attendance for a school. So they can say, okay, let's say uh, for med school, for example, okay, well, if you want to take this exam, the exam costs money. They can say the exam is required for graduation. That's where it's part of the cost of attendance if we're added to the bill. So yeah, everything, books, all these things can be on there. A lot of universities use tuition to pay for other things. They're not paying for the salaries teachers actually teaching those undergraduates, which are in many cases are like, you know, teaching, it, teaching fellows, teaching TAs, stuff like that. And so, you know, if you are spending that money on researchers and new buildings and things like that, that's not really fair to people who are going into debt to do this. And so I think that one of the things that people should really do is be held accountable that the cost of tuition are actually paying for the actual education in a direct way and not in an indirect way. One of the issues as well is that right now, and this is not to say a bad thing, but the federal government lets kind of you borrow money based on what school you're going to, kind of up to a certain amount. And right now what they do is they say, okay, if your parents make money and we give you less loans. And I, I just think the whole system on that perspective is not very fair to say that no matter what you're going into, we're gonna give you the same amount of money regardless of, of who you are, who your parents are, what school you're going to, what degree you're getting, what your prospects are, all that stuff is kind of uh, not so great. One thing that's been proposed a lot recently is something called an income share agreement, where instead of picking out a loan for a school, you, you would agree to give a fraction of your income after school to the school itself. So let's say instead of taking out 100 grand, you would say, I'm going to give you 10% of my income for 10 years. So if you make a lot of money, the school does well. You make a little bit of money, the school does poorly. But it gives the school skin in the game to help you be on your feet, to help you get a good job, to help you to be successful. And I think if we had something like that, that would certainly probably go a little bit further toward making sure people, A, we're not defaulting because there'd be nothing to default on, right? They'd just be dealing with a problem. It'd be more of a tax on your education as opposed to this kind of crippling nebulous thing that you just have to deal with that in some schools, it's really horrible and it's really crippling. And some schools, it's not because some schools are very predatory in their pricing, right? I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day you went to Georgetown, want to go to Georgetown, it was like $77,000 for undergrad, for undergrad, for one year. And it's like, you know, you know, if your parents make money somehow, then you're, you get to foot the bill, right? But your parents don't make money, you get, you get a free ride, right? It's like a place like Harvard, 
if your parents don't make much money, it's totally free, which is fantastic. But if your parents make money, then suddenly it costs lots of money. And so you have all these interplays of social dynamics and everything like that. It's just, I think, a very depressing way to handle the, the situation uh, across the country, really. But I do think income share agreements would be an interesting way to approach it. And it's, I think a few schools are starting to do it, but it's not very common right now. So we are, uh, when we're at the time of recording and when this goes out, we'll be a couple of minutes down the road, but you know, we're, we're heading into a situation where many colleges, including the one I went to and probably most of them out there, I mean, you're going from an in-person instruction situation in the classroom to now Zoom education, which yeah. it becomes a lot harder to justify the high cost and all, and all of that. Do you see that really impacting this higher education market? Is that going to have a downward pressure on the cost of tuition or do they just have too much control over the market and it's, it's going to stay high? I think it'll stay high. And the reason why is, is twofold. One is that Unfortunately, right, they have their own costs, right? So even if no one's on campus, most of the costs are things that they can't deal with. They have their rents are the same. Their faculty salaries are the same. So unless they furlough people and fire people, they don't have a lot of decreased costs. And so even though I think tuition is too high, it doesn't mean they're not spending the money. They're spending the money. Most schools don't have massive endowments. And so, you know, ultimately, I don't think they have the ability, frankly, to decrease tuition a lot, especially as I think a lot of students are going to be pulling out. So fewer students at your school get less money tuition. So you really have to keep the prices high. So I think on that, on that side, no change almost. I think compounding that is that, you know, ultimately it's sad to say, you know, especially at the higher end of tuition uh, scale, people are paying for the degree, right? You're paying for pedigree, right? So when you go to a school, like, you know, in the Ivy League or, or some of these private schools, Stanford, Tufts, or, you know, all these kind of random places, uh, you're not paying for, you know, frankly, you're not paying for the education so much. You're paying for the experience as an undergrad because it's fun. And you're paying for the fact that you can say you went there when you're done. The brand. Right? That, the brand, exactly. And so that brand doesn't change, right? So if you if you got into heart, you know, Yale this year, you're like, well, it's, it's a lot of money. It's not really, the value's not there. You're like, you know that. The value was never, it wasn't like, you know, Yale offered you five times more educational merit than your state school did. I, I, I sincerely doubt that in almost every case. And there are certain things, obviously, individual professors, certain laboratory things you can do. But, you know, for the average student doing the average stuff, like, no, no way. And so it really is a pedigree thing, and that doesn't change either. So I think, unfortunately, while the, the pandemic has kind of destroyed the country in a lot of ways, it probably won't touch this very much. It is, it is changing how the federal government deals with repayment temporarily. So they, free, they froze payments. So right now, everyone who's in repayment has $0 payments for right now, and the interest rate's 0% temporarily. Mm. Um, at least at the end of September right now, and they're talking about the current bills to extending it further. So right now, I mean, that's, that's the big change, is that if you've already paid for school, you got a little bit of a break right now. But for paying in terms of the actual payment itself, I think that's not going to change too much. Interesting. Do you think, I mean, this has to be possible, but do you think there are going to be any of those schools that are kind of on the margin um, that don't have these massive endowments? They're going to have students pulling out. They don't have this great pedigree. They're going to be closed. They're going to go out of business. It's already happening. So there's a certain kind of school. They're called like, you know, small liberal arts colleges, right? The ones that, um, Things like Swarthmore, like these kind of cool places, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the ones that are that are very famous are going to be fine. There are a lot of small ones that are everywhere. So, a place like Boston has like fifty colleges in it. You haven't heard of most of them because most of them are small liberal arts colleges. These are places that have very high faculty to student ratios. They have lots of faculty, very few students. It does not take much for those schools to go under because they're always kind of on the precipice. And even just internet-based learning for those schools has already been a problem. So, 
across the board, even before this happened, was kind of a wave of closures within that sector of school. So again, the state schools can't fail. They can get worse. <laughs> they can be defunded in some ways. They don't really close very often mm -hmm. if there are still students there. And the fancy ones are fine because they get they have money, they have endowments, they have the ability to get more money either via investments or via donations. But these kind of middle tier schools, yeah, they're some of them are are truly doomed. There's no chance for them. They're going to close. Wow, that is wild and fascinating. And I hate to hear that happening because I think education is a good thing. But this is the market speaking. Love this all so far. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Ben, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. All right, great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? The best investment I ever made was marrying my wife uh, because she is also um, an astounding person and she's excellent. She actually helped me, uh, kind of encouraged me to be a doctor. She's a doctor as well. And I think if I hadn't met her, I'm not sure I would have become a doctor, I'm not sure I would have uh, been where I am now. And we have a very similar uh, kind of frame toward money and investing and it's uh, made everything better. And so I feel very fortunate that that investment I made early, I met her in high school. And so it's, a, it's been a good, a good investment. Nice, nice, I love that. Partnership, ha. fantastic. On the other side of that, we had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? So the worst investment I ever made was probably buying my first house in med school. So I did the classic thing where, okay, I wanted to live somewhere nice. I didn't want to live in a terrible apartment. My wife and I bought a house leaving college, right? We took an FHA loan out, wow. bought a house. We knew we were going to live there for a maximum of four years and sold it. And it ended up not being terrible. We ended up kind of coming out, you know, even-ish. But it was still clearly a very risky move to, to know you're going to be somewhere four years, to buy in a market that was, you know, flat. This is in 2008. This is during the housing crisis of all times. Mm. Um, so it was not, not a super great time. Uh, buy it. Our interest rate was like 6%, which, you know, in historical terms, isn't very high, but compared to right now, it's not that great. And, you know, again, we had no money. So we were, we were paying for that house on student loans. And yeah, we would have paid for our apartment the same way too, but it worked out okay, but it was not something I would recommend most people do. I mean, depending on where you were, so many markets had such a dip in the price. I mean, you may have found yourself underwater there for a couple of for years. Sure. We, we bought it right before everything kind of went totally downhill. And so luckily things bounced back enough that it ended up being fine. We sold it to some, I think, real estate investor who wanted to have a rental property for medical students. So good for them. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, it could, and we had friends who bought houses in areas nearby that could not sell. They could not find a buyer, had to rent it out kind of unwillingly, you know, for years so they could finally sell it. So we got very lucky, but it was not, it was not prudent. Wow. Fascinating. So interesting. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? So the most important lesson I've learned uh, so far in my career is actually, again, it ties back to education. It's that it's never too early to take your head out of the sand with your personal finance stuff. And I always consider uh, student loans for me to be kind of a gateway drug toward personal finance. You're like, okay, it's not monopoly. We have to finally deal with it. And I think once you make the choice to start paying attention, to start being proactive in your decision-making, it never stops. So I think the most important thing is to start paying attention and, and try to do your best. Wow. I love that. I, I love when we get a, a quote that sums up the point perfectly. It's never too early to take your head out of the sand. That is perfect. Putting a button on this interview. I love it. 
Ben, I really appreciate everything today, all the knowledge, all the experience. I learned a lot and I know the listeners did too. If they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more, where can they find you? So my website is benwhite.com. I have my books on student loans are actually totally free. I have the full text available online that anyone can just read. That's at benwhite.com slash student loans. And I'm on Twitter at benwhitemd. I love that. Well, thank you for that. The, the, the free books are fantastic. I mean, whether you're somebody that is just getting out of college, you've got all this debt, you need to figure out what to do, or you've got children that are approaching it, this is important knowledge to have. It's never too early to take your head out of the sand. That's right. I'm going to have to write that one down. We're going to have to spread that far and wide. We'll give you credit, though. <laughs> Well, thank you once again, and thanks to everybody out there tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into their tribe. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great day and a great rest of your week. We'll talk to you on the next episode. Bye-bye.